0: if you would let's turn in our bibles to matthew chapter 11 for a brief second before we turn to our sermon text on matthew chapter 23. in matthew chapter 11 it was quite a while ago that i was teaching through the gospel according to matthew in our long teaching series and went through these verses in matthew 11. at the very end of the chapter Jesus says these words in verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, And my burden is light. These are sweet words. An invitation to come to Jesus on the basis of his gentleness and his lowliness in his heart. I just finished reading a book this week called um, Gentle and Lowly. A study on the heart of Jesus. It is superb. It is very, very, very good. I highly recommend it. And it has heavily shaped one of the things I want to accomplish in this morning's message to you all. Because in this text that I just read for you, you have the only words that are found in the Gospels from Jesus sharing what his heart is like. I'd never thought about that before. Apparently, Charles Spurgeon was the one that first pointed that out, but the author of this book, Gentle and Lowly, says, this verse right here in Matthew 11 is the only place where you will find Jesus telling you what his heart is like. And so what is his heart like? According to Jesus' own words, it is gentle and it is lowly. So as we're about to study a text of Scripture where Jesus is hammering the scribes and Pharisees with woes. I thought it would be useful for us to frame that passage of Scripture with a hopefully well-rounded or not a half-truth perspective on the heart and the emotional life of Jesus our Lord. Remember, Jesus is a human being, fully God, fully man, human being when he is speaking and talking in the Gospels. And so we know that Jesus is gentle and lowly. I don't think that's too hard to illustrate all throughout the different stories. But there's also another side right in Matthew 11 that we've already seen before. If you look back up in verse 20, in the same chapter, Jesus is denouncing the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, Capernaum, and you will be, will you be exalted to the heaven, Will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. When I was teaching on this passage of scripture, I mentioned that the first half of chapter uh, 11, 20 to 30, that section, the first half of these woes, those aren't really the kind of, coffee cup verses. Um, what I mean by that is, here's Christine's favorite coffee cup. And as you can see it, it has a little Bible verse on it. And uh, if you can't read it, I'll read it for you. It's Romans fifteen thirteen. Peace. May the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him and this coffee cup is beautifully decorated with these flowers and a friend gave it to her and she says it's one of those just nice comforting peaceful things that she does um we've got another one psalm 46 be still and know that i am the lord very beautiful colorful coffee cup verses that's what i mean um i also have this one i thought this was kind of fun uh embassy church elder coffee cup how about that in light of last week's teaching on uh having uh titles well i've got my own coffee cup now nate nate prater made this for me this last month uh, or this last christmas as a christmas present and and gave those to all the elders and then um and then i have this one it's matthew chapter what 11 verse 21 Anybody know what that says? Matthew chapter 11, verse 21. Well, if you don't know what it says or you don't have your Bibles open, I'll I'll show you. Woe to you. Because last time I taught on Matthew 11, I said, you know, we don't put woe to you on coffee cups. So some church members at embassy thought it would be kind of funny to give me a coffee cup that says woe to you. So, you know, if we ever get a church building And uh, I have my own office and do some counseling. This might be a good little thing to put on the desk when people come in and want to do counseling with Pastor Phil. Anyway, that, that same idea, hopefully the coffee cup thing will help us in terms of the same idea that I want to communicate in our message today. And so I'm going to read the text if you want. Let's turn our Bibles and flip over to chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. And I want to give you the big idea before I read the text, because I think that it will be useful for us to have this in our minds. And and here it is. Big idea. Jesus's severe wrath is an expression of his fierce and holy love for his people. Jesus's severe wrath is going to be seen in this text as I read it. I don't want to diminish the severity of the wrath of God expressed in Jesus in this text. But I want to make sure that we understand it is not at odds with, but rather an overflowing and expression of his fierce and holy love for his people. So let's read the passage of Scripture. And today's purpose is for us to to get this big idea and and not necessarily explain every little detail of this text i would like this to be an introduction to these woes and so let's read all of them all the way to the end of the chapter starting in matthew 23 verse 13 but woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, But inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness, so that you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you have witnessed against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your Synagogues and persecute from town to town So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth From the blood of righteous Abel To the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah Whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar Truly I say to you all these things will come upon this generation O Jerusalem, Jerusalem The city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it How often would I have gathered your children together as hens? A hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there's the overview of the woes and they are fierce and intense, and Jesus is angry. I don't think you want to water this down. The word woe can express pity or call attention to evil or apply, imply a threat. But in another sense, it is a curse, it is like saying, damn you, go to hell. It is strong language. And so therefore, I want to make sure it's clear to you that when Jesus is saying these woes, it functions as a curse. Cursed are the scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. It is very much like the prophets of old denouncing God's people when they failed to keep covenant and when they respond to Jesus's preaching. So this could be a very confusing thing, which I feel like is extremely easy for us to take these woes and this chapter and really misuse the scriptures to misunderstand the heart of Jesus. What was the one way that Jesus said that his heart beats in Matthew chapter 11? With anger and wrath or with gentleness and lowliness? So how do we make sense of chapter 23? And I want to provide three questions that I think if we can look at these three questions, we might be able to hopefully better understand the anger and wrath of Jesus in light of his gentleness and his lowliness and ultimately his love. So we'll work through them one at a time. Question one, when is Jesus angry? Question two, who is Jesus angry with? Three, how is Jesus's anger expressed? Each of these questions is extremely significant for setting the context for what's going on in Matthew 23. What is the context surrounding when and the timing of Jesus's anger? Secondly, what is the context of who Jesus is angry with? And thirdly, what is the context of the details surrounding how Jesus's anger is expressed? And so let's start with question one. When is Jesus angry? What chapter of Matthew is Jesus expressing this severe wrath and anger, this tirade, we could call it? It's in the 23rd chapter, which means that in the 28 chapters of the story of Jesus, it's not at the beginning. It's toward the end. And that's, I think, a significant, just basic, simple observation. It is late in the story. It is the last week of Jesus's life and ministry before his death on a cross. It is immediately after chapters 21 and 22, where Jesus has had significant interactions with the Jewish leaders in the temple. And it is just before. Those leaders are about to arrest him and murder him. The timing and the location of these woes should not be overlooked. Jesus has already, in Matthew's gospel, preached woe. Matthew chapter 11, my coffee cup verse. He's already made judgments and warnings to the Jews and the leaders of the Jews. He told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 to shake the dust off their sandals when a city refuses to accept his message and his gospel, his good news. They're going around trying to liberate and set free and speak love and grace and joy and people are rejecting this message. And Jesus says, shake off the dust from those cities. He has warned them that they are going to be a stumbling block if they get in his way and that they are in the wrong side of God's plans. But even with all the previous warnings and judgments, we have not heard anything like what I just read in Matthew 23. It is as if Jesus and his ministry is culminating in both its expression of love, as we'll see in a moment as he dies on the cross, but also in the, fierceness of his anger and wrath. Remember, Jesus's teaching is in five big sections. We covered that last week, that there are five big blocks of teaching and that the first block of teaching starts in Matthew chapter five, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. So you've got Matthew chapter five through seven as Jesus's teaching about how ministry should look, what the kingdom of God should look like, what the world should look like, what it means to be a human. And it began with these beatitudes, the blessings. Sam read for us earlier in Luke chapter six, another account of those blessings. And they're upside down blessings. And so Jesus begins his ministry and his teaching, not with woes. Matthew 23 does not come first. Blessing comes first. The first thing Jesus teaches is blessing. But the last thing he teaches is woes. And these woes, as we will see, are specific to a certain group of people who are representative of a certain nation and the destruction of the temple, as we will continue to see in chapter 24 and 25. I want to also point out, as I'm mentioning this relationship between the blessings and the woes, consider this, the first beatitude that Jesus promises in Matthew chapter five, in the Sermon on the Mount, it reads like this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the first woe that is read in Jesus's woes of Matthew 23? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Do you see the contrast? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will have and enter and inherit the kingdom of heaven. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are shutting the kingdom of heaven from men. Or similarly, the very last beatitude that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5 is a blessing on those who are suffering. Blessed are the persecuted and those who suffer for following Jesus for the righteousness sake, he says. The last woe in the chapter, verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous and saying, that if we had lived in the days of our fathers, then we would have not taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes and some of you Will kill and crucify, and some of you will flog in your own synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that you may come, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zachariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. From the blood of Abel, the very first person that was murdered. To the last person that was murdered in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Second Chronicles. If you're reading the Bible as a Jewish person, you begin in Genesis and you end in Second Chronicles. And so what Jesus is showing you is that from the beginning of the first murder to the last murder, the blood that cries out, your hands are filthy. Do you see the contrast between the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, how they begin and how they end? And then the woes. In Matthew chapter 23, how they begin and how they end. What's the point of that? It's that the whole story of Israel is being told in miniature form through the life of Jesus. The story of Jesus begins with a baptism in water where he's delivered out of that baptism and into the wilderness. And he is performing the exodus. The ministry of Jesus begins with an exodus story. It ends with a judgment story, a judgment on the temple or an exile. This is why these severe woes come at the end of Matthew 23. Not just because the occasion warranted it, which it did, but because Matthew is poetically and beautifully telling us that the story of Jesus maps onto the entire Old Testament story. And so if we take Matthew's gospel as a whole, we see that Jesus' speeches move through three stages. He first teaches blessing and life through the good news of the kingdom. But then, secondly, the Jews resist the gospel message of life and good news And so Jesus in Matthew 13 shifts to parables and says, fine, you don't want clear explanations of the gospel and receive my teaching? Then I'm going to speak in code so you don't know what I'm talking about. That's Matthew 13. And that's the middle section of the five big teaching blocks. So first, Jesus teaches what it looks like to be blessed and have life in the Sermon on the Mount, to walk in the narrow path. And not be led to destruction, to build your life on a solid rock and not be swept away in the sinking sand. But that message is rejected. And when it's rejected, Jesus then moves to parables, Matthew 13. And then, finally, the third move has happened. Here in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus denounces them with woes like the prophet Isaiah or Jeremiah When they are plotting to kill him, it is as if they are plotting to kill and destroy the temple that has been made flesh. And so Jesus says that the temple will be destroyed, both the physical building and his body, and that they're going to flog and whip and put him to death. So the question is, when is Jesus angry? Not the entire time throughout the Gospels. Your picture and vision of Jesus can and should be that he is gentle and lowly. So come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden. He wants to give rest to your soul. And the very reason that he is upset right now is because, question two, who are these woes against? Are these woes against all of the sinning people in the world? Or are they very specifically aimed toward the people who are oppressing the broken, weary sinners, the very people that he has such love and compassion and mercy toward? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly. Let me make sure I say this very crystal clear for all of you here today. If you are weary and burdened and you are feeling like you are beat down by the sin in this world and the sin in your heart and you are feeling like you need the rest and the mercy of Jesus, you can have it and you will not receive his woe. These woes are not for you if you are a sinner who is weighed down and you're longing for the rest that's found in Jesus. You will not be turned away. You will be found in his bosom, in his arms, with his embrace. He wants you to come. Do not read Matthew 23 out of context with the rest of Matthew's gospel and the rest of the heart of Jesus and think, oh man, Jesus is angry with sinners, and I'm a sinner, so he must be angry with me. Is that the way you're concluding? Is that the way you think about God? More on that in just a minute. But for now, who is Jesus angry with? That's the second question. Jesus focuses his wrath on the leaders and the teachers in Israel, the scribes and Pharisees. It says it every single time. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Hypocrite is that word that's used for acting. An actor that dresses up and he is saying, you are looking like one thing on the outside and you are brood of vipers, Pharisees and scribes. Not the people of Israel, not the regular sinners, not you and me, because we're struggling along in this life he's calling people brood of vipers those who are leading people to become sons of hell did you catch that when he said you in verse 13 and uh 15 woe to you scribes pharisees and hypocrites for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte that means a convert You're trying to convince people to follow you. So these are leaders and they're gathering a following. And he says, you'll go to any extent or length. And all of this is exaggeration and hyperbole, which is what I mentioned last week. Jesus is using big prophet-like metaphors and exaggeration and irony throughout the whole thing. And so you see it here. You will cross land and sea to make one single convert. You'll go over mountains and cross seas and do whatever it takes to get one single convert. And then what do you do? You make them twice a child of hell as yourselves. He is not upset with the people that are following the scribes and Pharisees. He is upset with the people that are converting the teaching to follow the scribes and Pharisees, those converters, those evangelists, the people that are putting burdens. Remember what we read last week, that you lay burdens on people's shoulders that are too hard to bear, and then you don't even help them with moving a single finger. He does not call everybody a whitewashed tomb. It is these specific characters that deserve greater condemnation because teachers have a greater responsibility so make sure it's clear jesus is severe in this passage not with sinners in general but with those who are being oppressed powerful leaders in high places so those who are oppressing sorry i think i said that wrong Not the oppressed, but the oppressors. He is severe with the powerful leaders who are oppressing in high places and not lifting and helping the burdens. It is the exact opposite of why Jesus came. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I want to help lift and liberate the burden of the oppressed. Jesus is hoping that his ministry, including these woes, will bring freedom and liberation to loosen the hold that has been on the Jewish community that has followed the scribes and Pharisees' teaching. Notice that in verse 20, chapter 23, verse 1, that Jesus says to the crowds and the disciples, and then he starts talking. So there are people in mind that he is hoping to set free By loosening them from the hold that the scribes and Pharisees and their teaching and their ideas have on these people. So by ridiculing them, by talking so intensely, he shows the crowds and disciples that they don't have to fear these religious tyrants. Jesus is like a new Moses now in a sense that he's setting the people free from this slavery. And so this is not like a polite, nice theological discussion. Jesus knows the stakes here. It is a life and death struggle over which path are you going to choose? There's a path that leads to destruction and there is a path that leads to life. And he is extremely intense about these matters because it is a life and death issue. To warn people, do not follow their path. The teaching of Moses and the Old Testament law that these Pharisees and scribes are basing their entire law and life upon is rooted in the tradition of Moses and the Torah. Think, for example, Moses came and brought them the gift of what is called the Sabbath. Sabbath was to break the yoke of the burden of being a prisoner and a slave under King Pharaoh in Egypt. So Jesus, when he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's as if he's saying, the Pharisees and scribes are like Pharaoh. They're small town little Pharaohs, and I am your Moses, setting you free. They want to force you to make bricks without any straw. Their teaching is a heavy burden, but Jesus is a liberator of the oppressed. And so he's protecting them. And they need to realize, and we need to realize who Jesus is angry with. He is angry with people who use their teaching and their ideas and their philosophies to further oppress those who are already heavily burdened. Before we move on to our last question, I want to just make one brief comment of application. I've used the language of oppression specifically in part because that language is being thrown around a lot right now in our uh, cultural commentary of what's going on between especially white and black relations in our world, between the police and uh, the citizens, And so I think it might be useful for us to help us to be liberated from a teaching that is apparently going to set us free to be a kind of Pharisee and scribe that is a hypocrite that is essentially saying that there is oppression that's happening in this world and and they're going to come along and set us free from that oppression and what I'm referring to is a a sort of ideology right now that's going around. And, and I'm, I'm bringing it up because I'm concerned that it might affect us in the church without even realizing how prevalent this is. So here's the thing. Even if you don't know this, this is a philosophy called critical theory. And it is a philosophy that came in postmodernism. And I'm not going to bore you with all the history and facts on this. I've been doing some reading and studying about it. But here's what you have seen and heard. And this is what I'm talking about. In the conversation right now about racial injustice and inequality, people are talking about how whites have oppressed blacks. I don't think that we need to minimize that reality in America's history and in, in the past, nor in the present. There is no need for that whatsoever, and I by no means want to add my voice to that minimization with any comments that I will make today. Jesus Christ is a liberator of the oppressed, and oppression has happened and is happening in a racial, unjust kind of way. However, the solution being offered by the world is very much a scribes and Pharisees kind of teaching that we should say woe to. For it is putting a further burden on our society by telling us that we should embrace critical theory instead of God's word and the gospel. And here's what you have probably heard or seen in terms of critical theory, even if you don't know the actual lingo behind it and the definitions. It basically says everybody is in some sort of class or group and you are either an oppressed or an oppressor. So if you are an older white male, then you are in the oppressor group. And if you are a Latino lesbian woman, then you are an oppressed group and so on and so forth. And it continues to categorize people by their gender identity, by their race and skin color, by where they come from, socio and economic status, et cetera. It's further dividing us into these kind of categories and then using those to try and liberate those who are oppressed. I have no problem with the idea of identifying oppression in the world and wanting to liberate the oppressed. I think all of us should hopefully give a hearty amen because this is, in fact, what the gospel does through the ministry of Jesus, even in this text that we're seeing in Matthew 23. But what we should have a problem with is things like this. Well, Well, if you've never experienced what I've gone through, then you need to just shut your mouth and not talk anymore. This is the sort of thing where it's essentially you don't know what it's like. Say, for example, let me give you one simple example. Right now, critical theory will use that kind of logic to say, like the people that are being influenced by this ideology and, and message. If you don't have a womb, then you cannot speak up about women's rights of abortion. So right now, I want you to, Think through the logic of that. Is it okay for your pastor who's a male to speak in to the issue of abortion? Or should we embrace the wholesale critical theory mindset and say only those who have the experience can speak on those certain issues? Now, One of the things we want to be careful about is I'm not saying that this means we should not have the posture I talked about a week ago in our podcast recordings of learning and listening and lamenting from the experiences of those who are being oppressed. But what I am saying is that I think it's extremely important for us to not hear that kind of thing and then intermingle that with an ideology that is completely opposed to the gospel. Into the teaching of scripture. God's word teaches that fundamentally all of us are made as humans bearing the image of God. And therefore our race and ethnicity should not be flattened as if it's meaningless, but it also should not be elevated as if it is the ultimate identity marker for what makes us a human being or classes us as people. So I love the fact that Embassy Church is not made up of one monoethnicity, which is the more biblical word than race. Race is a more modern word that we use to talk about people's com- complexion based on their skin color and how much melanin they have, whether they have a little bit or a lot, at least scientifically, that's the way to think through it. But we're image bearers. And so therefore, we need to realize that in some of these conversations, there is a danger that can creep into the church for the way that we interact, where you might be silenced. Because essentially critical theory wants in its end goal to have people that are in position, uh, positions of privilege or, or power or of influence that are all being lumped together in the same grouping based on certain things, whether it's like, well, you're a man or you're white or you're a heterosexual or And you fill in the blank. And fundamentally, our identity should not be rooted in those matters as Christians. Our identity should be rooted in being made image bearers, and our identity should be rooted in our our, our understanding of who we are in Jesus Christ. And so it's extremely important for us to make sure that we can understand the difference between listening, lamenting, caring for the oppressed, and a sort of false sense of social justice that wants to essentially overthrow the oppressed, overthrow the oppressors with more oppression by silencing them, by shutting them down, by by fighting racism with more racism. And, And that's essentially what I mean by we need to understand who Jesus is angry with and it is those who are in positions of power and authority and are using that and abusing it for the sake of their own wealth and power and they're ultimately oppressing people. And that's clearly what's going on in Matthew 23. And so in our world, we need to be clear that we don't lump every single person into the same sort of worldly categories and then simply say that they need to be silenced or shut down or treated as if it's okay. To oppress them now, where the oppressors, those who are being victimized and abused now think it's okay for them to victimize and abuse anybody else because of some sort of category that they find themselves in. This stuff is um, like it. A good example of this, again, is in The New York Times, there was a, a woman that was speaking out very negatively. Uh, about certain political figures that were like white men and, and calling them dogs and names and ridiculing them. And there's nobody that's saying that, like in fact, she was being praised as if like, that's okay. That's okay that you speak that way about those groups of people. That's not okay. And so that's the sort of thing I mean that we, we need to think through these issues carefully and clearly and not be swept up into um, social justice. And I, I think what I mean by that is that there is critical theory that's going around as being dressed up in social justice when it's really more injustice. The last thing we want to cover is how Jesus's anger is expressed, which is extremely different from the ways of the world and how oppression is liberated. And so we should notice the way the chapter ends. If you look down at Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to following, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. After an entire chapter of Jesus's very blunt and severe anger being expressed toward the leaders of Israel, the chapter ends with Jesus lamenting and weeping, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather your children together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But notice the phrase, you were unwilling. You didn't want it. What did I really want? What is his heart of hearts? Is it his anger? Is at the very core of Jesus' being, come to me, I am angry. Or is it come to me, I am gentle and lowly. The chapter ends with Jesus's deep sorrow for Jerusalem's rejection of God. Therefore, as I said in the beginning, the big idea here is that Jesus's wrath does not arise from his hatred. It, in fact, is an expression of his fierce and loving jealousy for his people. Remember, God has entered into a marriage covenant with his people. And he loves that marriage bride with a perfect and holy, passionate love that's committed to loyalty and faithfulness. And so he gives himself fully and completely to his bride. And yet the story of the scriptures says that they turn away from him and and they bat their eyes at the other gods of the nations and they go out looking for other husbands. And so this provokes God to anger and wrath and jealousy. A wrath that is not an expression of hatred toward them, but an expression of love that has not been returned back. If you have ever been cheated on, if you've ever walked through a divorce that was messy and ugly with someone, or you yourself have experienced that, You know now the sort of feeling that is like because of your deep love for that person and then the way that they are treating you by rejecting you and going after another lover. This is what's going on in Matthew 23. The core of God's heart is his jealous love. The wrath of Jesus Christ and the mercy of Jesus Christ should never be seen as being at odds with one another like a seesaw where one goes up and the other goes down. They rise and fall together because they are interconnected in the very being of God's heart and who he is. The more that we understand the just wrath of God against evil in and around us, the more you and I will understand his incredible love and mercy. It is only logical for a perfect human being such as Jesus, for him to be angry in Matthew 23. It is only logical and makes sense because it would be a contradiction if he didn't get angry. We might think that if Jesus is angry, then that means that's it in contradiction to his love, but it's the other way around. When you understand how compassionate And loving Jesus is towards his people. If he were to neglect his anger, then he would be neglecting his compassion. This is what I mean by they rise and fall together. A, A Jesus who shows no compassion whatsoever just would not get angry about the injustice towards people. If you really love someone and you care about the hurt and the pains and the sufferings going on in this world, then it is precisely because of that love that it would lead to feelings of wrath and anger. And Jesus does this in a perfect sense. You and I have no idea what this is like. Therefore, we should never project onto Jesus our experiences of anger because they're always tainted with a selfish and self-righteous kind of anger and never with the perfect purity of righteousness that Jesus has. This is the idea of a father who so loves his son or his daughter that when any abuse or mistreatment happens to them, he does not just look with indifference, but because of his great and deep love for his son or his daughter, he gets angry. So let me close with these words from the book that I mentioned earlier, gentle and lowly. Do you ever find yourself thinking, how can God love me when I've messed up again? Or increasing suspicion that God's patience with you is wearing thin. Do you ever think that you know that God loves you, but deep down inside, you suspect that you've deeply disappointed him? Do you tell other people about the love of God but wonder in your own life if he's harboring some sort of mild resentment toward you? Do you ever think that maybe you've so messed up your life that it will never be able to be repaired and convinced yourself that you have permanently diminished your usefulness to the Lord? I want you to think through whether or not you have projected upon Jesus your skewed instincts about how the world works and how human nature dictates that the wealthier a person is, the more that they will tend to look down on poor people. And the more beautiful a person is, the more they are put off by the ugly. And without realizing what you're doing, you might quietly assume that because Jesus is high and exalted, That he correspondingly in his moral perfections looks down on the despicable and the unclean. And so therefore you don't come near to Jesus because you don't think he wants to come near to you. And even when he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden for I am gentle and lowly. You have this picture of him kind of holding his nose because you stink so bad with your sin and your filth. May it be clear to us, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ does not cringe when he reaches out and touches dirty sinners. His embrace of sinners is precisely what he loves to do, and he can't bear and hold it back. He cannot bear to hold back his love. When we picture Christ approaching us, do not do so with a severe or sour disposition. Think about Jesus as him wanting all the more to be near you precisely because of how broken and hurt and sinful you are. A compassionate doctor will travel into the deep jungle to provide medical care for a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease flying in his medical equipment, correctly diagnosing the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared, they're available, and all of these people can be helped. He's wealthy. He doesn't need any financial help. He just wants to bless these sick people. And then, one by one, instead of receiving his care, they refuse it. They want to just take care of themselves and heal themselves on their own terms and in their own way. How do you think that makes the doctor feel? And then what if you add a more intensifying element that these tribe are not just some random people, but they're his own family members? This gets us into the heart of Jesus. In the same way that when a few people in that tribe step forward and they start receiving the care, what does the doctor feel when he's able to bring healing to their sickness? Joy. It's the whole reason he came. It's the whole reason he studied medicine. It's he wants to help and he wants to heal. So it is with Jesus Christ. He does not get flustered or frustrated when we come to him fresh for forgiveness for new pardon. That's the whole point of why he came. He went down into the horrors of our depth and plunged out to the other side to provide his limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. So come to Jesus. He is gentle and lowly with sufferers and sinners, He is not angry toward you who are weary and burdened and bogged down by not only your own sin and your own oppression that you have done to the people around you in your own life, but he is gentle and lowly toward us and he forgives us. And so let's receive it afresh, knowing that this is exactly what he loves to do. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for Jesus. We want to thank you for this word and this chance for us to see the very heart of God in the person of Christ, and that we don't have to guess and wonder what you are like and how you deal with sinners and how you deal with the injustice in the world. We're thankful, God, that precisely because you love humanity, you too are angry and you too have Wrath being stored up for those that continue to reject you and oppose your plans and purposes. And so we want to pray, God, that we would remember your mercy and remember your heart and we would receive your grace and we would believe by faith that you are a God of infinite mercy and that that is what your heart beats every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close out with two songs that are going to celebrate the wonderful mercy of Jesus and his love toward us. The first song is Wonderful, Merciful Savior. And the second song, I Stand Amazed or How Marvelous.